0: Psalm 95, verses 6 through 11. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm normally where Blake is, although I don't know how to play piano, unfortunately. Someday I may learn. Uh, I wanted to just remind the men coming up in the next couple weeks, uh, men's roundup, September 8th, through 10th, awesome opportunity at Camp Tadmor, really cool camp, uh, just east of Corvallis. Um, about what, 1,500 guys expected there this year. We've got uh, Mac Brock is coming to lead worship, which is super awesome. He's one of the guys out of uh, used to be out of Elevation Church, and now he does his own uh, solo touring stuff. There's about eight spots left. Um, get signed up. We've got two cabins there. A bunch of guys are already going. Uh, you don't want to miss out. It's a really really cool opportunity. Uh, just wanted to remind you of that. So we are in Psalm 95 this morning. I know it's technically still summer vacation. There's a, there's a couple weeks left. I don't know whether that means it's more relaxing or less relaxing for parents. I know my daughter is super excited to get back to school, as am I. Um, <laughs> but uh, show of hands, let's get some participation. Who here feels rested this morning? Okay. You had a good night's sleep, you're feeling good, you had a good weekend. Life is just smooth sailing, no aches and pains. Well, that's, that's one kind of rest. But, uh, but what about a different kind of rest? What about a rest where your soul says it is well and you breathe deeply in the midst of whatever circumstance you have. You're free from anxiety, there's no unfulfilled longings. You are at complete peace. Does anyone have that kind of rest this morning? Good, you guys can take a nap. The rest, of you need to hear this. So, why is it that so many of us did not raise our hands at that moment besides being Baptists and thinking this is not in the Bible? If you even read the Bible for more than a few minutes, you will come across verses that talk about rest. Depending on the translation that you're in, the Bible mentions rest up to 520 times. It's, it's one of the most common promises of God that he makes to his people in all of his covenant promises, both through Jesus and through you know, the Old Testament, Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant. All of these transactions and these relationships that God builds with people, he almost always promises rest as an element of that relationship. In fact, one of our favorite promises comes from Jesus in Matthew 11. You probably, most of you know this verse pretty well. Come to me all who are weary and heavy-laden, and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If those words are true, why can it seem so hard to find? The whole world chases after rest with all of its time, all of its resources. I read an article recently that said that Americans spend over $200 billion a year on streaming services. $200 billion a year to find some fleeting semblance of rest in a 20-minute show before going to sleep and starting the rat race all over again. Or this idea of living for the weekend. You know, you, you're just working Monday, Friday, I'm living for the weekend, weekend's coming. No matter how incredible your weekend is, Monday always shows up again. So with how often the Bible talks about rest, you would think that we as Christians would be better off. But, but so often we're not. We're as much contributors to those statistics of anxiety and, and subscriptions to things that don't satisfy, as everyone else in America by and large. So, uh, what gives? Like, what, why isn't there a marked difference if there's that much in the Bible about rest? Either the words of Jesus aren't true, or you and I are missing something. And I'm going to argue strongly it is the second one. Psalm 95 is a psalm of David, um, and it's both an instruction manual on how to find and enjoy the privilege of God's rest, as well as a warning about the perils of missing God's rest this morning, so we're going to explore the depths of this psalm to answer the question, how do we have God's rest? And there's two really simple steps. Step one, know your foundation. Let's begin reading in verse one, Psalm 95. "'O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation.'" Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. So the psalmist, David, is is stirring up the hearts of the hearers of this song to worship the grandeur and the majesty of God. It's not only that He's the powerful God who created everything, He's also a good God. Everything He does is inherently and completely Good. The first thing I want to point out in this poetry is the repetition of the phrase, in his hand. God's hands are mentioned three times between verses four and seven. And the imagery is, is both one of, of great attention to detail. When somebody works with their hands, you know, there's, there's just this extra level of, of artisanship or detail versus just being this mass-produced, printed, stamped thing. Um, And it's it's this idea of personal investment, this this cost me something. And and as I formed each thing, you get to know the details intricately of that thing. I saw an ad recently for a uh, a mechanical pencil, and it was handcrafted one at a time from solid rods of uh, titanium and the 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 ad says, you know, master lathesmen handcraft these one by one from solid billet, you know, titanium. And they're made to make this like one seamless looking piece, so it actually screws apart so you can change the parts inside, but when you screw it together, the seams completely disappear, and it's like this one solid amazing piece of metal. And they measure it, laser accuracy, to four decimal places. Like that's how incredibly accurate um, this thing is. And it has all these metal internals you can swap out. So you can use 0.5, 0.7, or 0.9 lead all in one thing. 250 <laughs> bucks for a pencil. You can buy a 10-pack at Target for like five bucks. 250 bucks for a mechanical pencil I'm going to lose tomorrow. But that's the point that, that David, the author, is highlighting here in this psalm. He's a good God, he's an invested God. He, he's a God who measures to the fourth decimal place. He's a God who made everything intentionally and he cares about everything intentionally. And, and there's an, an artisan level cost to that. It, it means that everything that God created is valuable. He didn't just, you know, offhand, uh, yeah, we'll make an animal like that. And yeah, we'll do, yeah that's good enough, I guess. Like, everything he said, it is good. This is exactly the way I wanted it to be. Now, sin spoiled a whole bunch of that, but the original intent and the original design is exactly the way God wanted it to be. And so our right and proper response to that kind of loving, caring, intentional, detailed God is is to come together and worship Him, because He's worthy, because He's good, because everything He did, it cost Him something. And there's great care and attention to detail in everything that He did. And he's not worshiply, merely worshiping God from afar, either. You know, like the way you admire a waterfall or a sunset. Like, you know, OK, that's, that's a beautiful thing. That's really cool. And you just kind of admire this thing that's out there. He's encouraging us to engage relationally with, with God, because he's talking about how, OK, so he made, he made the mountains with his hands. He made the depths of the sea with his hands. His hands formed the intricate details of the mountain peaks and every single little jagged thing Oh, and also, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. He shaped and intricately designed each one of you, and he actively cares for you. He didn't just snap his finger, there's a person, now you go off and be in that place. It's it's both imagery of, of care and detail in creation and also sustenance. And when it says, he is our God... In, uh, let's see, where is it, verse 7. For he is our God. That's a really loaded statement if you're an Israelite. When we see he is our God, we should go, oh, OK, they, they get it. Because most of the Old Testament, they don't get it. It's not just he is the God who made all this great stuff. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Now we're going to go enjoy it. We'll see you later. It's, it's proclaiming that everything we are and everything we have, everything we experience, belongs to God, our maker. It's not just God is the Lord. God is my Lord. Can you imagine introducing your spouse or friend to somebody the first way? Hey, my name is Seth, and this is the wife in the relationship, Megan. <laughs> oh, well, the husband. There is the couch. <laughs> there's, there's a personal relationship involved in, he is my Lord. This is my wife. I am invested. I value, I treasure this. But perhaps even more important than him being our creator is that he is, as David proclaims in verse one, the rock of our salvation. That is an incredibly important phrase or name for God throughout all of scripture. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It'll be up on the screen. We're going to spend first portion of our time there. Uh, this is an amazing psalm, Psalm 95, because there's like two or three different passages in Scripture that literally are like a complete um, commentary on Psalm 95. So my job felt like really easy this week. It's like, oh, well, the Bible says, so that's what it means. Done. Like, <laughs> so that was really nice. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 14. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, that's the Red Sea, and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For the drank, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So as the Israelites are being led out of Egypt, they get led through the Red Sea, they get led into the desert, and, and the desert is just the most convenient way with the least number of enemies to pass by in order to get to the promised land. And the whole time they're being provided manna, when they get thirsty, God provides water from a rock. Um, all of their needs are being provided for. And, and Paul reveals to us that that rock that Moses struck in order to get water from is, was, Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the source of their salvation. And that's both in, in, a very, that's in a very real sense. If they did not receive that water in the desert, they would have all died. So there's a very real reality to that rock being an, an actual salvation just to keep them alive in this moment. But also, it's another opportunity to trust that God is going to provide. So it's also a source of salvation in that we're not relying on our own means. We're relying on God to provide everything for us, because that's the only way we can be saved. And we know that rock, of course, we have the the spoiler alert, the New Testament, so we know that that rock is Jesus. They only knew that, you know, a a hint or a portion or a foretaste, um, a theophany, maybe you would call it, of, of what that actually represents. We get to say, hey, by the way, that's Jesus. And that makes it really important that we understand what our foundation is, what the rock of our salvation is. Because it's Jesus. And that means that Jesus is our source of rest. He is the foundation on which God offers deep, nourishing, sustaining soul rest to us. Paul continues on in this passage saying, Look, look, this is what happens when you don't know your foundation, when you deny the rock of your salvation, when you deny Jesus Christ. His commentary on the Israelites grumbling in the wilderness and the water continues in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. He's referencing the golden calf moment when they're at the base of Mount Sinai, and Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments from God. And they all, I don't know if you remember the story, they all wonder if Moses is ever coming back. And so his brilliant brother Aaron goes, Give me all your gold, we'll melt it into a golden calf, and we'll worship that if you can call it God, because that'll be, be good enough. And so they sit down to eat, and they have a a feast to this golden calf, and then they rise up and play, which is very uh, PG. They uh, had an orgy. They had a massive party full of terrible, horrible things in their drunkenness and in their uh, idiocy, honestly, Uh, in their, well, yeah, the the, the mountain's rumbling, but uh, who knows if God's really real. I don't know if he's going to take care of me. We don't know if Moses is coming back. We'll just, we'll take care of it ourselves. We'll find rest our own way. Continue in verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Uh, The serpents is in relation to Numbers 21. Let me turn there real quick. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 6. I don't have it on the the slides, but... From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea, so this is right after they passed through the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So they had manna, they had water, they just were sick of it. They were sick of God providing things for them. They wanted to provide their own stuff. They wanted the menu to have one more, more options than manna on it so they could pick and choose. Verse six, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And then Moses makes a bronze version of a snake and, and they can look to the snake, which is a whole thing for Christ. There's a whole bunch of stuff we're not gonna go into there But because of the grumbling, because of their dissatisfaction with God, seeking rest in other places than the rock of their salvation, um, they experience the consequences of their sin in the moment, not just in eternity like we so often think of. Uh, Verse 11, back to 1 Corinthians. So the Israelites, they experienced the deadly consequences of their sin. And it was written down he says that twice, which is really important is written down so that you and I today can learn from their experience. And, and then he goes on to say. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Anyone who thinks he stands, take heed. Be careful lest you fall. The only reason you are not experiencing the wrath of God right now is the grace and mercy of Jesus on the cross. Amen. That is the only reason you are not currently running away from fiery snakes it is because God is patient and God is faithful and has provided a way through Jesus Christ. So there's no reason for boasting. There's there's no reason to think that you are better at not sinning than the Israelites were, like we're so much better off than they were. We have the exact same hearts. We just have the benefit of Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit, which is huge. And then verse 14, it honestly caught me off guard when I was reading through this. I've read through this passage many times, but verse 14 kind of caps off his thought. And all of these things, all these sins the people did... All these warnings, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry, which, which seems a little bit weird to me, especially if we think about idolatry the way we do today, where it's like it's all metaphorical, because obviously flee from worshiping a cow made of gold, duh. I mean, who would honestly do that today? But, but we, we forget to realize that our idols can be so much more uh, muted. They, they can be so much less obvious than a shimmering golden calf in the middle of a field. The reality is that idolatry is, is the root of all sin. Now, the sin may have a different name. It may have a different outcome. It may have a different thing that it looks like. But idolatry is the root of all sin because sin is always a worship problem. That's what idolatry is. It's, it's the worship of something other than God. Worship is an expression of what we value, and that's what that, mean, that word means. It's a shortened version of worth What you what you ascribe worth to, what you deem valuable, is what you worthship, worship. And that's exactly why David starts off the first half of Psalm ninety-five with this extravagant invitation to come and worship, and then talking about all of the deeds and all the good things that he has done worshiping God for all he's done, reminding our hearts of his greatness, his faithfulness, his authority, his worthiness, the fact that he deserves all of this praise. It helps turn our wayward hearts away from our disordered desires. Helps turn our hearts away from the enticingness of sin, the enticingness of of worldliness and satisfying selfish desires. Because this is where the Israelites went wrong. They did not acknowledge the rock of their salvation, which was God providing for them in the wilderness, which we know as Christ. And they instead worshiped their personal comforts and their, and their preferences over and above the good plans that God had for them. They told God, we don't want you to provide water in the desert. You, I want you to take me out of the desert. And we do the same thing. Jesus, I don't want the rest your word has to offer this evening or prayer has to offer this evening. I want the rest Netflix has to offer this evening. Being with me in the valley of the shadow of death is good. Like, Thanks for doing that, God. How about we just don't be in the valley of the shadow of death? Why don't you just take me out on the plane instead? I know you're capable of that. Why be with me in this when you can take me away from it? And so we can so easily start to grumble and whine and our prayers turn into like hardship avoidance wishes that we toss into a wishing well. God, take the thing away from me. God, take this thing away from me. God, I don't want to experience this. And instead of communicating with and submitting to a trustworthy and faithful God who is going to provide for you in unimaginable ways in the middle of the valley... We just would rather be out of it. And that means that we don't truly believe that he wants what's best for us because our version of what's best for us looks way different than his does. And I think we start to question whether he really does want our good. So step one, know your foundation. Jesus, the rock of our salvation. Step two is this, respond favorably to him. Let's keep working through the psalm, uh, starting in the uh, end of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. I wasn't planning on it originally, but I want to go ahead and read the exact story they're talking about. It's really short, but so you can really get the detail of what's going on at Meribah and Massah. Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. It's kind of a legitimate question, isn't it? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come come out of it, and the people will drink and Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not?" So I don't, I don't doubt that they were thirsty. I don't doubt that it was a real need, but they were not waiting on God's timing to fulfill that need. They had this understanding of, you know what, I'm going to die in the next two minutes if I don't get water. It wasn't actually the reality. But they didn't trust God in their hearts to provide, and so they're looking for other ways to provide for themselves rather than wait on the Lord. God's original plan for the Israelites to be in the desert was actually only a few weeks. If you actually chart from the Red Sea to the Promised Land, it's like a three-week walk or something like that, and it's not that much of a wandering route. Um, the the area of desert they wandered in was actually really not that big. I I don't know how many times they probably passed the same rock just over and over and over again wandering in this area. But they grumbled the whole time, the whole three weeks. And then when they got to the edge of the promised land, they sent the spies in and the spies, all but two of them, brought back this scary report of giants and walled cities. And there's no way we're going to be able to conquer. There's no way the God who just parted the Red Sea and provided water out of a rock is going to be able to conquer these giants. And so they crumbled in fear, and, and they, they wanted to stone Moses and Joshua, and, and they wanted to go back. They literally started recruiting for a leader instead of Moses, who would lead them back through the desert. I don't know, back through the Red Sea again. I'm not sure what they were expecting. And back into Egypt, because at least there were meat pots there instead of this darn manna. And so, verse 11 in Psalm 95 says, Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. I want to address something really quickly here because there's a lot of misunderstanding around God's wrath that I think we need to clear up in this passage to be able to really understand what God's saying here in verse 11. It's not saying that God is petty or vindictive or or gets offended easily and he wants to watch his people burn and die because they they grumbled a little bit. God is not a murderous tyrant. We were actually just talking about this topic in our elders meeting this previous week about how wrath is actually an element of God's deep and relentless love. There's a fantastic quote up here from theologian F.D. Bruner. I'll put it up on the screen. God's wrath is the love of God in friction with the reality of injustice. It is the warm, steady, patient, but absolutely fair grace of God in collision with manifest selfishness. God's wrath does not contradict God's love. It proves it. A love that pampers injustice is not lovable. Take a picture of that. Write it down. That's so incredibly important. God's wrath is the love of God in friction with the reality of injustice. Why did God do everything he did for the Israelites, providing for them in so many incredible, miraculous ways? I mean, every day there was another miracle in the wilderness, and still they grumbled. It's because he loved them. It's because he wanted the absolute best for them. Did God owe the Israelites freedom from slavery in Egypt? Did God owe them a perfect life in a beautiful and fertile land. Actually, yes, but not because of them. Not because they earned or deserved any of it. It's because of his covenant promises, because of his goodness to Abraham way back in Genesis 12, when he promised him that I'm going to make a great nation out of your children, as numerous as the stars, and they're gonna live in a beautiful, amazing, fruitful land for all eternity. So the entire process of the plagues out of Egypt and, and through the desert, through the Red Sea, the manna, the water, all of these miracles that were happening day after day after day was, was God's immense love and extravagance pouring out on these people, God's plan for their life working itself out in the every single day details down to the where is my food and where is my water coming from. I don't know if any of us actually think we really live like that anymore. And this is how they respond to his loving care. I want to be my own rock of salvation. I don't need you as a foundation. I don't want to be saved your way, God. I want to be saved my way. Why do I have to walk through a desert for three weeks when you could just teleport me there instead? The reality is that God was incredibly gracious and faithful. And they respond unjustly in their constant grumbling and complaining and whining and spurning of God's goodness. My guess is even in drinking that water, they were doing it with a frown. Fine, we'll take your water from the rock. A little mio would be nice, maybe a little lemon. But God would not be a loving God, as that quote said, if he pampered the injustice of the grumbling. The ungrateful Israelites, just as if you as a parent are not loving your children if you let them get away with everything, if you never discipline them, if you never show them the boundaries, if you never teach them how to be thankful, you're setting them up for failure. You're setting them up for ingratitude. You're setting them up for a self-destructive course of selfishness. And so what is the consequence of the Israelites hardening their hearts and not responding favorably to God, to rejecting the rock of their salvation, the foundation and the source of God's rest. They don't get to enter the Promised Land. They don't get to enter the rest. They instead wander the restless desert for 40 years until that entire generation dies outside the Promised Land. They can see it over the horizon, never get to experience it. And as 1 Corinthians 10 noted, this story is written down as an example for us, and a warning for us. Here's the warning today. Rejecting Jesus means missing out on God's rest. If you don't respond well to the generosity of God giving his only begotten Son on the cross to die for you, if you don't respond well with gratitude and thanksgiving to that gift, he will not allow you to enter his rest. It would be unjust. God would be unfair if he let those who do not respond to Jesus into his rest. When David writes, today, if you hear his voice, he's not just talking about an audible call like Samuel. You remember the call of Samuel? He's laying in his bed, a seven, eight-year-old boy. Samuel, Samuel, did you call me? Nope, nope, go back to bed. It may be that. But when he says, today, if you hear his voice, it's, it's any way that you encounter and experience and, and understand the reality of God. He calls to us in creation. He calls to us in every single thing He does. So if you're reading your Bible, you're hearing the voice of God. If I am preaching or whoever up here is preaching, if you're sitting and listening to a sermon that's biblically based, you're hearing the voice of God. When we engage in worship together and sing, you're hearing a bunch of people sing with the voice of God. Of God, the Holy Spirit inside you stirring your heart, nudging you. Insert Maybe you should go talk to that person. Maybe you should pray about that thing. Maybe you should give that person that thing. Encouragement from brothers and sisters in Christ. Admonishment: Hey, buddy, cut that out. That's that's going to be some problem for your marriage. That's the voice of God. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. The book of Hebrews chapter three and four are an amazing commentary on Psalm 95. It quotes almost the entire thing um, and it tells us really plainly everything that David was meaning and and what the implications are for us. Um, If you wanna get the whole picture, honestly, just go home and read the entirety of chapters three and four, it lays it all out beautifully. We don't have time to go through the whole thing today. I'm just gonna touch on a couple highlights relating to how we can respond poorly to God and how we can respond well to God. Because that's, that's, that's step two. Respond favorably to God. How do we do that? So we'll start in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 15 through 19. Verse 15, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So there's verse 8 from Psalm 95. For those, um, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And for whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. These people witnessed firsthand. They experienced the the benefits of some of the greatest miracles God ever did. The Red Sea, I think, is quoted more than any other miracle as the most incredible thing God ever did for his people, maybe besides creation and, of course, Jesus on the cross. But as far as it, like invading human space and doing something miraculous in order to see his will done and the benefit of his people, it always goes back to the Red Sea. That's why we do baptism, is to, is to copy the Red Sea. It says in First Corinthians 10, they were baptized into God, into Moses, by going through the Red Sea and coming back out. So they grumble, and they reject God, and they want their own way, regardless of the fact that they've seen incredible miracles that, like, everybody in our culture is chasing after and hoping to see now. They got to see Him firsthand, and it still wasn't enough. Their downfall was was unbelief, and disobedience. And the writer of Hebrews wants you to see that this is a cyclical thing. It's a downward spiral, both unbelief and disobedience. Uh, unbelief in God's goodness and, and like his intentions and the things that he's doing causes you to disobey his commands. Well, I don't really know if he knows it's best for me. I'm gonna go do this option instead of the thing that you want me to do. And then when you face the consequence of your disobedience, duh, it's gonna happen, you blame shift God. Why'd you do that to me? I was just, I was just, and then it cycles downward and downward and downward. You disbelieve him even more, which causes you to disobey him even more. And now you're just straight on running the complete opposite direction and blaming God for you running that direction. I don't know if I've ever heard an atheist or someone who doesn't believe in God not blame God in some element of their defense for why they don't believe. There's always a blame shift element. It's never their fault. So how are we supposed to heed this warning? How are we to respond well to God? There's two ways in this passage. First, in verses 3, uh, 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin." For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So, the first way we respond well to God is by being aware of any evil or unbelief that's creeping into our hearts. It's always subtle. Responding to the gospel of Jesus is not a one time prayer and then you're set for life. We we know that in theory, right? But I don't know that we always live like that. It's a lifetime commitment, continually laying your desires and your fears at the feet of Jesus and, and trusting his goodness and his providence, his faithfulness. And, and that's a hard thing to do consistently alone. Isn't it? We're prone to grumble, we're prone to wander. I think this is one of the main reasons why it's really important that the church gathers regularly. One of the re- main reasons why the church exists, it's to exhort one another, to encourage one another to stay the course You weren't meant to have to do this on your own. That's why we have each other. So if a brother or a sister in Christ is being weighed down by, by anxiety or fear, or they're heading down a slippery slope of sin, it's, our job is to encourage them back to Christ, to call them out if necessary, in love, of course. But to call them out, hey, buddy, that, that looks like running the wrong way from God. That looks like disobedience to me. That looks like unbelief creeping into your heart and also us being honest and vulnerable enough with each other that we are willing to prompt those conversations with others. Hey, you know what? I, Pastor Greg said this last week, and I suddenly realized, I don't believe that. Have you ever done that with a song? I, it's a little bit sad how often I do that leading worship. I'm just going through the motions, eyes are closed, you know, yep, get through this song. I know this chorus. i have sang it a hundred times. And all of a sudden, I'll feel this little conviction, like, huh. I don't think I believed the words that I just sung. There's, there's a problem. I don't think I believe that God is going to provide in that way. I don't know that I believe whatever it may be. Sometimes we sing songs to the Lord so that we can find out our own hypocrisy. The second way we do this, we respond well to God, is in verse uh, chapter 4. just a little bit further down, verses 11 through 16. Paul says, or actually, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. I'm going to guess Paul. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. I'm going to read that again. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him who must give an account. Verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin." Verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help, grace to help in time of need. Strive to enter God's rest. Does strive mean you are earning God's rest? No. It is not earning. The striving is the work that it takes to reject the worldly lusts. The striving is the work it takes to say no to temptations, to reject God and worship myself and and pursue my own desires, and, and I decide when I get a drink of water, and I decide where I go, and I decide what I do, and I decide how I get provided for. Just like Satan and Eve in the garden, way back in the beginning, Genesis 3, that sneaky little voice that whispers, did God really say, does God really care? Does he really know what's best for you? You're a smart guy. You're a smart gal. You, you see, you look, you know. You know what a good plan is for your life. You know what good decisions look like, right? Trust yourself a little bit. Who needs God? He's too busy doing other stuff. He didn't really care about you. Fighting that is exhausting, am I right? Please tell me I'm not alone. Fighting that is exhausting. And the amazing news is that Jesus knows our battle. He has had every single one of those whispers ever whispered in your ear, in his ear, and probably more, and probably more intensely, because it was Satan himself, the angel masquerading as light, the actual head of all of the demons, the author of evil, himself was the one whispering in his ear, not just some little demonlings or little underlings. And verse 16 says, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace because there is mercy and grace and help in our time of need. He will be faithful to provide. He knows the battle better than any of us and he is here to help us persevere. So how do we have God's rest? One, know your foundation which is Jesus. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And two, respond favorably to him by being aware of your heart and striving to say yes to God and no to the world. A couple closing thoughts. To those on the fence, I have a warning. Being outside of God's rest, it's a nasty place. It is a dark, scary, relentless, painful, terrifying place. You do not want to be there. And the church is not a Trojan horse. You cannot sneak your way into God's rest. You cannot ride a church pew all the way into heaven. Or say a prayer once, lock in your fire insurance card. Every single person sitting in this room, every single person on this earth who has ever existed will give a personal account of their life before God Almighty when Christ returns and there's judgment before the great white throne. And they will show who they pledged allegiance to in this life, belief in Jesus or belief in their own works and goodness, aka unbelief in Jesus. Please, I beg of you, make sure you are on the right side of that conversation with God. And you do not know when it is coming. It might be tomorrow. You do not know. Do not hedge your bets that it is a long way off. It is coming, and there's no way you can cheat through that exam. There's only one right answer, and it's not Jesus is the Lord. Every day, one day, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess Jesus is the Lord. The only right answer is Jesus is my Lord, my Lord, not the Lord. Even the demons know Jesus is the Lord. Make Jesus my Lord. And to those who long for rest but aren't sure where to start, I'm with you. It's amazing how quickly this can start to slip through my fingers. I think I'm there. God, we're good. One little minuscule thing, one calendar change, one unexpected expense, and suddenly everything is crumbling down around me and my life is almost over. I'm a little melodramatic. Maybe you're not that way. Bless my wife. In verse 2 of Psalm 95, David says, Come into his presence with thanksgiving. There's an intrinsic link between God's presence, worship, and rest. Exodus thirty-three fourteen 14 says this as, as they are preparing to continue on in the wilderness. God says this to the Israelites. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God wasn't telling the Israelites that they should be more optimistic and be thankful for the desert. Desert's not a restful place. They have to walk long miles, often changing campsites, and they never knew how long they were going to stay. The cloud would settle, and they'd camp. Okay, we're going to be here for who knows how long, and the next day it picks up. Oh my gosh, all this stuff. Get everything together, and now now you camp again, and then you stay for three days, and then you stay for five days, and then you stay for a day, and you stay for six hours. They never really knew. It's not a restful place. But rest is not to be found in the desert, but in the presence of God who is with you in the desert. If I can say it another way, a more generic way, rest for your soul is not found in your circumstances, but in the God of your circumstances. And if you have surrendered to him, he is the God of your circumstances. Remind yourself of that. He does still have control. He still holds it in his hand. You are the people of his hand. And one of the best places to enter the presence of God is right here. Now, you have the Holy Spirit within you. That's the presence of God. But right here in this moment, in this gathering of believers who love the Lord and worship him, believers together, worshiping God in song is one of the absolute best places to encounter the presence of God and find rest. So let's do that together one more time. But I want to challenge you before we do. We don't just sing these songs because they're biblical and true. That is one reason. We train our hearts, we train our tongues to sing truth, to remind our hearts of truth, and to weed out um, unbelief, to weed out hypocrisy. But we sing these songs because God is actually here right now. He is presence, is here in this room, and he hears the songs that we sing. We don't just sing them to each other. That's important. We don't just sing them to the wall over there for some reason. We sing them to a God who is actively here, and he hears with ears, and he listens, and he is blessed by our worship. I know often when the Bible talks about rest and talks about peace, it's in reference to eternal security, and that's, that's a huge portion of where we get our rest is knowing that in the end everything's going to be made right, and that That's good. But when Jesus promised in Matthew 11, rest for your souls, I think he meant right now. Because he was talking about, as opposed to the burden of the Pharisees. He wasn't just saying, rest for your soul someday, so just just put your head down and and just keep going. It's going to suck. Sorry. He was talking about, the Pharisees have loaded you down with over 600 laws that are impossible to keep. And they've they've loaded you with all of this burden and all of this weight to try to atone for your own sin. I offer rest now. I offer a break from that now. I offer a, Lord, I am so sorry I did that again. Thank you for your grace. I am burden free now. It's not just one day you will get out of the desert, but that God is with you in the desert in this exact moment. Psalm 1611 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I got to believe that means right now. I got to be- believe that means every time I get to experience the presence of God here on this earth, there is fullness of joy. Not just when he comes back. There will be, for sure. But I think we can experience that here and now. And 1 Peter 5, 7 says this, cast all your anxieties upon him, for he cares for you. He longs to give you rest. He is not stingy about rest. Like I said in the beginning, every single time he makes a covenant with people, one of the biggest promises he makes is rest. He is trying to give out rest left and right like old AOL CDs, like just rest. You get rest. You get rest. You get rest. He's longing to give rest, and we go, nah, I think I've got it covered. He invites us to cast all our anxieties upon him. And sometimes you need to do that by actually physically speaking words to a brother or a sister. As we sing this final song together, we don't normally do this, and I didn't warn Pat about this either, but I'm going to have Pat come up on this side at the base of the stage, and I'm going to be on this side of the stage here. And if you want help laying those anxieties down at the feet of Jesus, physically speaking them out, If you need help wrestling with that thing that's gripping your soul and keeping you from finding the rest of God, come let us help you. Let us pray for you. Come and just just kneel at the feet of Jesus. Let's pray and worship the Lord together. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much that you are so incredibly generous, that you have seen fit to create a beautiful, intricate people with so many unique things and and beautiful ways that we express elements of your glory. Lord, thank you that you long to be relational, that you want to be with us, that you long to give us rest. You see the anxiety, you see the turmoil, you see the pain, and you hear and you know, and you freely offer, Lord, thank you for your rest. I pray that you would help us seek it, help us recognize that we need your rest. The beauty and the simplicity of this rest being about knowing your foundation and responding well to you is that we can look and go, okay, do I have rest? No, I don't. That means I need to seek Jesus. Is he doing anything in my life that I'm not responding well to? Lord, help my heart turn towards him. Let my heart turn and be favorable toward God. Lord, open people's eyes this morning. Open people's hearts. Pray that you would release chains that bind people, fear, anxiety, past anger, past hurts. Lord, you offer complete forgiveness, complete healing, and complete rest. And I completely believe that you offer all of that now. It may be hard to fully experience on this earth with all of the lies, the deceit, the distractions, but Lord, I believe you offer it now. Would you help us, Lord, be our strength? Help us get over the fear of running towards you and just run towards you with full abandon, seeking your rest. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen. Amen. Will you stand with us as we close with the final song? And remember got people up here to talk with you, pray with you, encourage you, help you. Let's bask in the presence of the Lord together.